0: Throughout this series, we've talked about sports legends, be they athletes, coaches, broadcasters, or innovators. But a big one we missed came up on one of the series' many clip show compilations.
1: Marcus Allen, Mike Tyson, Extra Innings, The Tight End Decoys, so it looks like we're running a draw play, Magic Johnson, Bobby oh, Tampa Bay Bucks, and there off the pig takes the lead, the chicken.
0: Technically, Golden Moments Parts 1 and 2 are the 69th and 70th episodes of the show's run. They both ran on February 13th, 1988 as a single one-hour episode during the show's third season and are credited to all four of the show's writers-slash-producers. The loose idea that connects all of the clips is that Sophia plans to move to New Jersey to take care of her son Phil as he gets a divorce. But really, that's just an excuse to rewatch some of the funniest bits from the previous 68 episodes of the show. Of course, a big chunk of those bits involved sex. And in the setup for that section, Sophia lets Blanche have it with a savage zinger.
1: Need I remind the three of you of the yutz parade that's been through this house? <laughs> Sophia, be fair, at our age it's not easy to find the perfect man. Or maybe we have all dated our share of losers, but I personally have had my share of winners too. Please, you've ridden more winners than Willie Shoemaker. <laughs>
0: William Lee Shoemaker was commonly known as Willie by the public, but preferred Bill or just Shoe. Although he passed away in 2003, Shoemaker remains perhaps the most famous jockey of all time. And like a lot of legends, he has a life and a history that few, if any, will ever be able to top. When he was born in Texas in 1931, Shoemaker was premature, and by some reports was kept alive by his grandmother, who put him in a shoebox and kept him warm using the family stove. He would always have a slight frame, but it never prevented him from participating in sports, including wrestling and boxing, where he won a Golden Gloves Championship. Shoemaker would top out at four feet 11 inches and 98 pounds, but with an athletic build, quick hands, and a trust in horses, all of which would serve him incredibly well for more than four decades in the saddle. After his parents' separation, Shoemaker went to live with his grandparents on a cattle ranch, and then with his father in California. As a teenager, he worked at ranches and was riding professionally by the time he was 17. He went on to ride over 40,000 races, winning over 8,800 of them. For almost 30 years, Shoemaker was the winningest jockey on record. Now only Lafitte Pinquet Jr. and record holder Russell Bays have won more. Shoemaker led the country in money won for a jockey in 10 different years. He led all jockeys in the country in wins five times. The track at Santa Anita, California would be considered his home, and he would ride over 2,500 winners there. Twice, Shoemaker won six races in a single day, once at the age of 21 and again at the age of 38. He won each Triple Crown race multiple times, but never all three in a single season to capture the big prize. Of all the horses he raced, Shoemaker said his favorite was Swaps, the mount he won the Kentucky Derby with in 1955. Shoemaker called Swaps the first great horse he ever rode. Spectacular Bid, Gallant Man, Ferdinand, and Damascus were other decorated horses ridden by Shoemaker. By 1958, Shoemaker was already a member of the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame. By the 1970s, he was so famous that Andy Warhol produced a series of portraits of him. In 1990, after over 40 years of wins and races, the fiery and outspoken Shoemaker embarked on a worldwide farewell tour that rubbed some in the horse racing world the wrong way. They claimed he did it for ego and greed and could have bowed out more gracefully. About two years after his retirement, Shoemaker was involved in a terrible car accident in California after he had been drinking with a friend. His spinal cord was severed, and he would be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. But that didn't keep him off the track. He instead became a trainer and earned another three million or so dollars guiding horses to wins from that position. He also authored three novels starring a jockey who became a detective. In October of 2003, Bill Shoemaker died at the age of 72. Horse racing is a sporting world unto itself, But his name, whether you call him Bill, Willie, or just Shu, transcended that strange realm and into the popular consciousness. Of all those staggering numbers he achieved, that might be the most incredible single feat he ever accomplished. Another early topic of ours was golf, which we first talked about in Episode 5. In The Engagement, the Golden Girls pilot episode, Blanche is devastated to learn that the man she was hastily engaged to is a bigamist. When she sequesters herself in her room, Rose and Dorothy try every tactic they can think of to get her out.
1: Tell me, how is Blanche? (laughs) She didn't go to work again today. Uh. It's been three weeks and she just sits in her room. The museum's gonna fire her. Well, we've tried everything. Golf, the movies, theater tickets, she wouldn't even budge for Julio Iglesias.
0: It's a shame that Sophia hadn't met Julio Iglesias at this point in the show yet, She could have had him pop over to the house and say hello to Blanche personally. We are going to talk about that first episode a lot more in our next installment, so just sit tight until then. In Rose's Portrait of a Woman, a late final season episode written by former production assistant and script supervisor Robert Spina, Rose starts out the story wrapping a golf club to give to Miles for his birthday. Unfortunately... She listens to Blanche's advice and ends up giving Miles a racy bedroom photograph of herself, which is accidentally seen by all of his college professor friends. Meanwhile, Dorothy runs into Randy Becker, an old student of hers who went from near high school dropout to successful video game entrepreneur. He offers her a job as a trainer to motivate his employees. But on her first day, Dorothy finds out that motivation isn't on their minds. You're not really gonna teach, are you? But that is
1: the idea. Look, listen lady, we're here because we know how to do our jobs. That's why they gave us
0: a free week in Miami. I mean, usually we come to a seminar like this and you check off our names and we go play some golf. You're happy, we're happy.
1: Okay, Harry, I've just checked off your name. You're free to go. And if anybody else would care to go, feel free to. However, if you'd like to learn something, then I strongly suggest that you stay.
0: Dorothy quits the job when she realizes that these lazy bastards are too far gone to be reached. But she does have an idea for a video game in which players repeatedly punish an old woman. There's a good chance a game like that is probably available on your smartphone right now. Harry, the guy who wants to bolt Dorothy's meeting for the golf course, was played by character actor Angelo Tiffy. His face might be familiar from shows like 21 Jump Street or Party of Five, soaps like Young and the Restless and Days of Our Lives, or movies like Meet the Fockers and Collateral. Randy Mr. Ditch Becker was played by Tom Villard, who should be familiar to Golden Girls fans from his first turn on the show, Season 2's Vacation in which he played one of three dudes who ends up sharing a bathroom with the girls at a shitty Caribbean hotel before sharing what they think is a deserted island. Originally from Hawaii and educated at New York's Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute and the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, Villard had made a career out of playing amiable goofballs on TV and in 80s comedy movies like High School USA, Weekend Warriors, and Savage Steve Holland's Immortal One Crazy Summer but he also made his way into bigger releases too, appearing in My Girl and Clint Eastwood's Heartbreak Ridge, in which he played amiable U.S. Marine goofball Profile. By the time he was on The Golden Girls, Villard was already a familiar presence on TV, thanks to a show called We Got It Made. The sitcom had starred Villard and Matt McCoy, who would later appear on The Golden Girls as a soup kitchen organizing priest in Season 5's Have Yourself a Very Little Christmas, as regular guys who just happened to have a maid who was a Monroe-esque blonde bombshell played by voluptuous future Playboy model Terry Copley. The show started out okay when it first premiered on NBC in 1983, but critics were harsh and ratings petered out, ending in its cancellation after one season. But in 1987, the show was improbably revived in national syndication, with only Villard and Copley returning from the original cast. That version didn't fare much better, and also only lasted one season before getting the axe. After the Golden Girls, Villard appeared on a couple of episodes of Baywatch, one of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and in the Pauly Shore film In the Army Now. He also continued to do stage plays, and was also a frequent guest on game shows like Super Password, Body Language, and both the $10,000 and $25,000 pyramids. In 1992, the openly gay Villard was diagnosed with AIDS. Two years later, he went on Entertainment Tonight to publicly announce his condition. While he experienced some professional struggles after his diagnosis, his appearance on ET led to supporters expressing their admiration for his courageous announcement. But in November of 1994, Tom Villard died of AIDS-related pneumonia. He was 40 years old. In his memory, his partner started the Tom Villard Foundation, to provide supplies and services to aid sufferers in the Silver Lake community of California. The foundation is no longer running. In terms of screen time, Tom Villard wasn't on TV long. But those who saw him and his endearing goofiness will surely never forget him. Ironically, video games are sports themselves now thanks to the rise of esports. Teams playing games like League of Legends, Fortnite, and Overwatch draw huge crowds across the globe, as well as big-money sponsors like Patriots owner Robert Kraft, Mets owner Jeff Wilpon, and stars like Shaquille O'Neal and Alex Rodriguez. This July's Overwatch League Grand Finals were broadcast in prime time on ESPN and sold out Brooklyn's Barclays Center, something I'm pretty sure neither the Nets or Islanders were able to do in either of their most recent seasons. It might be a weird thing for older folks and non-gamers to understand, but esports is huge and only getting bigger. I hope Randy Becker's Borealis got in on the action early. Another Golden Girls golf reference was in Season 6's Love for Sale, written by Don Siegel and Jerry Prezygian. Dorothy reluctantly agrees to participate in another Bachelorette auction, something I think only happens in TV shows. The other girls have pooled their money together to make sure Dorothy doesn't get bought by the same kind of loser who won her hand the year before. But first, we get to hear Sophia's wild introduction for her daughter.
1: Variety is the watchword for our next bachelorette, Dorothy's Bornack. Come on up, Dorothy. This is perfect. The way the bidding's going, we won't be out more than $20, $30 a piece. If Dorothy's not off winging her way to Molokai to assist Father Damien in his work with the lepers, you can find her hang gliding high above the Florida Keys. Rose, where did you get that? From your mother. Before she and I talked, I wasn't aware of any of it. She's a scratch golfer who, under President Jimmy Carter, served as the United States Senate Majority Whip. And she likes to read. I figured, close with the truth. It'll kind of anchor the rest. I want to thank you all for holding this event on a night when my hang glider is in the shop and uh, Congress is in recess and the lepers are on Geraldo.
0: Unfortunately, no one planned on Stan's Borneck outbidding them for his ex-wife, which creates a problem Dorothy has to deal with for the rest of the episode. Forgetting about all the rest of that stuff, what does it mean to be a scratch golfer exactly? First, let's talk about another common golf term, the handicap. If you have a handicap, its number equals the strokes over par you normally shoot on an average 18-hole round. A player with a handicap simply adds that number to their score after the round is done. That way, bad golfers and good golfers can play around together and keep their scores on a more even playing field. Being a scratch golfer basically means you can play a USGA course with a zero handicap. That means driving off the tee to about 250 yards for men and 210 yards for women and reaching 400-yard holes in two strokes. Can Dorothy do that? you have to win her at a bachelorette auction to find out. We've done a couple of episodes about Olympic sports, and I missed a big mention from Rose's Big Adventure, a late Season 3 episode written by Jeff Abugoff. The titular adventure involves Rose convincing her risk-averse boyfriend Al to buy a boat and sail around the world, which he quickly regrets. Meanwhile, the girls have contracted an old Sicilian craftsman named Vincenzo, played by old Italian actor Vito Scotti, to convert their garage into a spare bedroom. Instead, Vincenzo succeeds in transforming their garage into a garage. Sofia simply explains that mistakes like this are a time-honored Italian tradition.
1: How did this happen? Vincenzo, no garage, ma una stanza da letto. Stanza da letto? Sofia, Do mi hai you mi un garage the prima classe, le ho dato un garage di prima classe. Eh. It was a slight misunderstanding. You see, in Sicily, every region has its own dialect. Actually, every town has its own dialect. Actually, every household has its own dialect. <laughs> this also explains why the Italian army is as effective as a Jamaican bobsled team.
0: Rose's Big Adventure was the only Golden Girls script for writer Jeff Abugoff, who would also pen Episodes 4 and act as a producer on some other high-profile shows like Roseanne, Grace Under Fire, and Two and a Half Men. In 2015, he wrote a novel called Zombies vs. Aliens vs. Vampires vs. Dinosaurs, which you can buy on Amazon right now. The Jamaican bobsled team is best known from the 1993 film Cool Runnings, which tells a fictionalized account of the group's creation and debut. But the team was and is still very real, and has been since the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. After seeing two man pushcart races in the mountains of Jamaica, Americans George Fitch and William Maloney were reminded of bobsledding and they decided to try and start a team for the island country. Their attempts to recruit athletes didn't work, but when they approached the Jamaican military for volunteers, they found some willing participants, or at least dutiful ones. The sledders got trips to Lake Placid, New York, Calgary, and Austria to try out tracks, but they also practiced on their push carts back home. By the time they made it to the Olympics that year, The winter sports team from the Caribbean country were media darlings and a worldwide underdog story. Sadly, their performance wasn't championship caliber, and they finished in 30th place after a series of crashes and sled malfunctions. Jamaica has sent bobsled teams to winter games in 1992, 94, 98, 2002, and 2014, but never finished higher than 28th. Another Olympic reference happened in Season 7's Questions and Answers, written again by Don Siegel and Jerry Przigian. Dorothy is excited to get a chance to live her dream when Jeopardy comes to Miami to scout potential contestants. But first, we are shown a dream sequence in which she loses the game show to, of all people, Rose. Apparently, Dorothy dreams of competitions quite frequently. <laughs>
1: I won! I won! She must be having the shot put dream again.
0: (laughs) We talked about questions and answers back in episode 8, but we haven't yet talked about the shot put, which is one of the oldest Olympic sports. The idea of throwing rocks for competition goes back to the days of Homer, and the Scots of the first century were known to have weight hurling events. But at some point in the 19th century, British military members started using cannonballs as throwing objects, and the seeds of the modern shot put were born. The idea behind the sport is to take the shot, in this case, a spherical weight, usually made of iron or brass, and weighing 16 pounds for men and eight pounds for women, and putting it as far from a marked circle as possible within the designated area. This is not an easy thing to do, and there are several methods for getting the most distance out of each attempt. In 1951, shot putter Perry O'Brien pioneered a method in which the thrower rotated 180 degrees after facing the back of the circle. In 1956, he broke a record by completing a throw of 62 and a half feet, and his glide style became the go-to method for most competitors. Later, a full spin technique was popularized by Russian shot putter Alexander Baryshnikov, and that's been the norm since the 70s. In either case, the shot must remain under the putter's neck for the entire motion and released above the height of the thrower's shoulders in each of their six throws in order to count. Shot put was first added to the Olympics way back in 1896 and has continued to be a staple there and in track and field competitions around the world. The women's shot put was added to the Olympics in 1948. Randy Barnes holds world records for both indoor and outdoor shot putting completing a 75-foot, 10-inch outdoor throw in 1990, a year after having a 74-foot, 4-inch indoor throw. Valerie Adams of New Zealand became the first person to win four consecutive world titles in the shot put back in 2013. Marathon running was covered across two episodes in our second season, but this Sneeze and You'll Miss It reference was left off. In The Flu, which is sometimes called The Flu Attack, a first season episode written by James Berg and Stan Zimmerman, the girls all get cripplingly sick before attending the ironically named Friends of Good Health Awards Banquet. Fevers and tensions run high as the cooped-up girls get on each other's nerves. Once they decide they're too ill to go to the awards show, though, things begin to calm down a bit.
1: Rose, I wouldn't be one bit surprised if you won that award. You know, oh, I think you're right, Blanche. Why, sure, why, you took part in the walkathon a and yep. the bikeathon and the telethon. At the barathon. <laughs> but who keeps track?
0: <laughs> but the ceasefire is short-lived, and they go to the dinner sick as dogs and still at each other's throats. In the end, Sophia wins the Friends of Good Health Best Friend of the Year Award and reminds the girls how lucky they are to all have each other in Sickness and in Health. There's a funny Easter egg in this episode, too, as Blanche tries to force Rose and Dorothy to watch another world. Rue McClanahan had a recurring role on the long-running soap opera in the early 60s playing a love-crazed nanny. We've covered football a few times, and one of our between-season minisodes even covered the history of sports in Florida. The state's first professional team were the AFL's Dolphins, and Blanche Devereaux is intimately familiar with the ins and outs of the franchise. In season two's Whose Face Is This Anyway?, written by Winifred Hervey, Blanche is determined to get plastic surgery to look better, like her old sorority sisters that all looked fabulous at their recent reunion. So she sees a doctor who can give her exactly what she wants.
1: It just so happens that breasts are my specialty. You have that in common with a linebacker I know on the Miami Dolphins.
0: (laughs) Blanche ends up not having the surgery when she lands a date, with the doctor she was there to see. That solution makes her feel better and is way cheaper than plastic surgery. Dr. Taylor was played by character actor Joseph Whipp, who spent a long time playing cops, doctors, and other authority types since the early 70s. His first TV roles were on two episodes of The Streets of San Francisco, and he just kept on playing cops for years. You may have seen him as Mike's boss on two episodes of The Middle, too. Whip is also a particular favorite of horror maestro Wes Craven, and has appeared in three of the director's films, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Chiller, and Scream. So, which Dolphins linebacker was Blanche possibly talking about? Whose Face Is This Anyway ran on February 28, 1987, and was written before that. Looking at Miami rosters around that time shows that it could have been veteran Bob Brodzinski or Buccaneers transplant Hugh Green, or first-round pick Jackie Ship, or Mark Brown, who led the 86 Dolphins in fumble recoveries with four. Sadly, it seems we'll never know the truth. As a person that started two podcasts, the best advice I can give anyone that's thinking about taking the plunge is to just do it. All you need is some recording software, a microphone, a place to host the files, and an idea. None of that really needs to cost any money. The first mic I used to podcast came from a video game, Karaoke Revolution for the Xbox 360. My prep for Golden Girl Sports took place over the course of a few weeks of watching syndicated episodes and making a list of all the sports jokes I came across. Once I had enough, I decided to start. A plan for two seasons soon became three, which, before the first season was over, became four. Still, even after all the researching and writing and recording and editing, there were a lot of relevant jokes that I missed. Yeah, I could have watched all the DVDs again before sitting down to write the episodes, but I kind of feel like if I had done that, I probably would have talked myself out of doing the podcast by the middle of it. I've made additions throughout the four seasons, kind of painted myself into a corner. So here we are. The other big thing I learned while doing this is that making a podcast and marketing one are two totally different jobs. I like to think I'm okay at one and extremely lousy at the other, which is why I'm very thankful for those of you who found this show however it came to you. But next time on Golden Girls Sports, it's time for one final lap around the track. That means it's also time for a spin-off. Golden Girls Sports is written, produced, and narrated by Dan Saraceni. The theme is Golden Sunrise, instrumental version, by Josh Woodward and is available at freemusicarchive.org. Visit goldengirls-sports-podcast.com for show notes and references and follow us on Twitter at goldengirlssp. Thanks for listening.